Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. For more information, you can visit the Cinema Catch-Up Club's official Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Or you can visit our website, thoughtjarproductions.com. This podcast is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we would really appreciate your subscriptions there, so pick your service of choice. For more information about this and other podcasts we produce, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. This week, we mark the passing of the comic book legend, Mr. Stan Lee, who sadly left us a couple of weeks ago at the age of 95. We thought, what better way to mark the indelible legacy left by this man who helped bring us such characters as the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the Hulk, and several others... Uh, by looking at one of the films that he helped influence. We are looking at the film X-Men from the year 2000, as picked by you, the audience. Joining us to watch X-Men, we have, as always, someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Tegan Mulvaney, everybody! Hello! Long long time no see. Long time no see, I know. (laughs) Uh, Tegan, you've not seen the X-Men. No, I haven't. Um, I think I was saying before, like, I really had to think back and make sure that I hadn't seen it because it's just permeated my psyche through the millions of other X-Men films that exist that I have seen some of and um, I don't know, just life in general. It's and Stan Lee's influence on the movie world and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, But I definitely haven't seen it, um, which is disappointing. Very disappointed in myself. Well, we're going to rectify that uh, Thank shortly. God. Yes. Um, so, with with obviously um, Stanley being being such a big part of things, do you have any particular thoughts on on Stanley as someone that was involved in creating or helping facilitate the creation of so many of these characters, which are now very popular? Um, I mean, what an imagination! I guess I I, I don't know. There's so much in the films, and I think the way these films are changing and evolving, I'm really excited to see, like, we, we know all his characters, but, like, how that, how they've changed and evolved over the years of, of, of um, films being made about him. Does that make sense? Like, he, mm. you know, a film from 2000, like this is, X-Men film, is so different to how we're seeing these characters portrayed now. And it's so nice that he seems to have played a part in all of these transitionings of the characters and the way the films are made because he's always in them yeah, you know he's well, always quite literally playing a part li- exactly so there's there's obviously a love for the way other people love his characters mm. and the way they want to show them as well i find that really spectacular i think um sitting back and and being someone who's um a fan of film but not necessarily a massive fan of uh these sort of characters um i just mean like not i haven't read the comics or anything like that but i really admire someone who is passionate about their legacy and how their legacy is shown um 
by those that want to make his make films about the characters he's made. Mm. It's cool. It is cool. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the the fallout, I guess, or the reaction to Stanley passing was was quite quite big. I mean, yeah. I, I, it was one of those things that you sort of always assumed when it happened was going to be. Like, leave an impact. It's fun. He's one of those people. Was he 95? 95, yeah. And it, everyone, everyone was so shocked that he passed yeah. away. It's like, he was 95, guys. But mm. I think that that speaks to how incredible a person and a creator he was. Because mm. at 95, people are still shocked and devastated that he's passed away. Mm. Well, joining us as our guest who has seen the film and uh, a little bit of a fan of the comic book genre... It's Murray Jackson, everybody. Yay! Hello, everyone. Welcome back, Murray. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So, you have seen X-Men? Oh, yes, yes. I've <laughs> definitely seen X-Men. I saw it when it uh, came out at the cinema in 2000. Um, it was the probably the second... I think it is the, yeah, the second film that Marvel... Um, not Marvel Studios, because they sort of started with Iron Man um, and they're on. But the... the Big budget Marvel films that were were licensed out um, and had Marvel's name on them. The first one was Blade, and the second one, I'm pretty sure, was X Men. Mm. So, right. yeah, I was there, eagerly anticipating, wondering what the heck they were going to do with it mm. and whether or not it would work. Well, in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, for those who haven't yet seen the film, did it work? Yes, it did massively. So, um, the film. And the treatment of the characters and their backstories is not always in line with the um, uh, the comics. Uh, so most notably in this film, um, the, the the backstory of Rogue, uh, the, f- the fact that um, yeah there are differences with characters such as Mystique, um, and yeah it's just yeah just that that basic not being able to take a comic book and literally put it on the screen you've Mm. got to make some sacrifices somewhere but you left that initial screening back in 2000 Mm. um satisfied with what you saw oh absolutely because i've always separated the films from the comics Mm. and i I believe they each have their own standalone um want of a better word importance uh in the genre so i don't I'm not going to get tweaky about the fact that you know, they aren't faithful mm. to to the comic origins or, or backstories. Mm. I guess it would be the same as getting grumpy if, you know, we know that a novel adaptation to film is never going to be the same as the book. So it would mm. be the same as a comic, really, wouldn't it? Where mm. you're never going to be able to get all of that into a two-hour movie or two-and-a-bit-hour well, movie. You've also got to realise you've got 55... Well, actually, at the time of 2000, you would have had 27 years' worth of backstory. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Which That's is a lot to pick from. In and terms the cartoon of, and things yeah. like... I I was a massive fan of the cartoon oh, the in the cartoon. 90s. It was awesome. What, one of the, like, Saturday morning kind of, like childhood cartoon memories i have it's that and in terms of superheroes the batman animated series oh totally they're, they're the mm. two that stand out you know and that amazing theme just the so cool it was yeah it was really lovely um i think sense. that resonates with me like you yeah. know when you see and i'm i'm curious to see if it still happens when watching this film because i remember seeing other you know superhero films and that excitement when you see your 
favorite cartoon heroes as real people. Mm. That's very cool. I remember watching Spider-Man, mm. the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie mm. and, and having that. One, because it was Spider-Man 2, because it was Sam Raimi directing it mm. and going, this is this is so exciting to see this stuff come mm. to life. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a big uh, event at the time in terms of um, how the fans approached it. Uh, there was a lot riding on it. And look, being a, yeah, just being a little bit um, you know, patriotic here for a second, I think a lot of the success had to do with the, the portrayal of the character of Wolverine by, by Hugh Jackman. Absolutely. I think it's undoubtedly the case when you look at, obviously, the fact that we're in 2018 and Hugh Jackman has only recently hung up his adamantium claws mm. after doing 10 films Jeez. as that character. I think it's fair to say that... Uh, and he almost didn't worked. do it well, as well. Exactly. We'll, we will get we into later, yeah. the unfortunateness mm. that happened to Do Grey Scott. Uh, yeah. but, um, but also the gravitas of bringing mm. actors of the, the calibre, you know, Royal Shakespeare Company actors like Patrick Stewart Ian and Ian McKellen. McKellen. Yeah. Mm. Um, Even people like Halle Berry, I guess, yeah. because she was right. Of her, she was Oscar winning by that point, wasn't she? She went for she, uh, year or two before after, Monsters. Yeah. Ball. Okay, yeah. so she but, was, but that sort of early two thousands period is like you know yeah. she's a Bond girl. It's yeah. basically everything pre Catwoman. And Anna Paquin's in this as well. Yeah, so mm. there's mm. lots of people. She was she's an Oscar winner. So yeah, uh, yeah lots it's it's of, a great cast. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I suppose before we get on to watching it, uh, just a little bit from you, Murray. About uh, Mr. Stan Lee. Now, Murray, you're a person who owns. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say far too many comic books, but more than I think I will ever even consider looking at in a lifetime. You are a big collector of mm. of the, um, comics of of many varieties. W- what are your thoughts on on Stan Lee and the the legacy that he has now left behind? Well, Stan Lee, um, yeah, what a career! Because that guy started with Marvel. Uh, or you know, back in the days, Atlas Comics um, and Timely Comics before that. Um, I forget the exact decade, whether it was the 30s or the 40s. It's an awful long time. He was there um, as co-creator. 16 when he started? 16 or 17? He was, he was very young. I'm not sure. It might have been 17. Who cares? He, he was very young. Um, and his uncle um, owned you know, this this comic book business uh, but didn't really have a great deal of time or love for the genre just get it out there these this is back in the days when um, you know a lot of uh, uh, Jewish um, uh, publishers were involved in I guess for want of a better word the exploitation titles Mm. Um, so girly mags and you know astounding stories and whatever you know a whole mishmash wrestling magazines you name it and somehow comics became a big thing Mm. and they were smart guys but they needed to get their product out there and they didn't really care at the time specifically what sort of product it was they're essentially J. Jonah Jameson slamming the desk and going get me more comics of Bingo. Spider-Man yeah. yeah so you know you had um, you know Kirby and Lee um, put out you know Captain America number one and that was probably um, Timely or Marvel's um, first big success along with um Titles like Submariner, The Human Torch. Uh, and then comics went through a really bad period um, where you know, once the war ended, no one wanted superheroes anymore because the war was over. So we didn't need superheroes as an, as an alter ego 
for what was happening out there. Biffing Hitler and, and the whole nine yards. And then comics went through, um, I suppose, a, a stage of um, self-regulation uh, because they were seen to have gone too far. There was a company called EC Comics came out with some very gory horror comics and it was decided that that was going to be the... Uh, the undoing of the nation's youth and therefore um, a thing called the the, um, the comics uh, code came into play whereby comics were watered down uh, a great deal and there were some very very antiseptic titles out there um, Marvel itself as a as a company the company Marvel didn't come into play until the early 1960s um, at that time uh, you know, Marvel in its previous format was a, a company called Atlas Comics. Um, Marvel Comics came into play, but they were restricted in the number of titles they could put out because their distribution company, believe it or not, was also the parent company of DC Comics. Oh. So their competition was actually their distributor. And therefore, they could only put out, I think it was 8 to 12 titles a month. They had to be very picky and choosy about what they did. Lee, in the early... 60s was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with comics he really wanted had ideas of becoming a proper author and and you know um uh, putting out some decent literature and he said to his wife that's it i'm 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 gonna pack it in she said why don't you just do a comic where you can do exactly what you want to do and if it dies it dies and go and do your thing and that comic was fantastic for number one and from there, the rest is history. The Marvel phenomenon happened and mm. superheroes became popular and followed by Spider-Man, the Hulk, and then X-Men mm. came along. X-Men was a, a very middle-of-the-run title for Marvel. In fact, it was cancelled in the late 60s for a period through to about 1975 um, because it wasn't a big seller. But Lee's influence has been debated Um because there are a lot of people who say, well, Jack Kirby was really the big force behind the successful titles that Marvel had. Leaving all that aside, you cannot deny that Lee has been a champion for Marvel and a champion for the comics medium over decades. Mm. And that's his legacy. It is. And um, yeah, I think it's... I mean, you know, we are a, a film podcast. We, we focus on film primarily. But you look at the impact that Stan Lee and the properties he was involved with have had on film over the last 20 years. Oh, he was trying to champion yeah. putting out films based on Marvel characters since the 60s. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, we've seen it happen. We've seen it be successful. You know, we've got our... What are we looking forward to this year? Captain Marvel, uh, the fourth Avengers film. Um, the next... Oh, that's what I was... What's the... After Infinity War, which I just watched the other night. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. next Avengers one. What, what did you think of Infinity War? I loved it. Yeah, and that's just it. We get we get these films where it's like, you know, you get to see Thanos going around and, and doing his, his thing. But, again, like just the transformation. Of, Thanos is such a cool bad guy because he thinks he's doing the right thing. Like mm. he's talking about biffing Hitler on the chin. Like he's back, he's almost this kind of dictator-esque style because he uh, the the ending of that film was incredible it was you'll see that with a lot of the villains is that a lot of them are nebulous characters Mm. in terms of some of the stuff they're doing is horrible but there is reasoning behind it and you'll see it in this film with magneto 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. As an example. And it's, Thanos has a hell of a chin to Beth. So, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're looking forward to, to seeing more of that. He looks like if Bruce Willis and Josh Brolin had a baby, it would be Thanos. And then that baby struggled Went to breathe purple. for a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And a cord around its neck for a yeah. little while. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, with that being the case, um, should we watch the X-Men? What an image to end on. Let's <laughs> watch it. <laughs> All right. For those of you uh, listening at home, pop in your DVDs and prepare to find out what happens when lightning strikes a toad as we watch X-Men. I don't know what that reference means. <laughs> While Stephen and his guests are watching the film in question, I'm just going to take this moment to tell you about another project from Thoughtjar Productions. It's a science fiction radio play series called Atlantis, and it's available to download right now. All you have to do is go to www.atlantisradioplay.com, click the Listen Online tab, and you can listen online or download up to seven episodes of original science fiction content from Thought Jar Productions. That's AtlantisRadioPlay.com. And now, back to the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching X-Men. That, yeah, that's it for the title. No X-Men First Class, no X-Men Second Son, or whatever they're called. Just <laughs> straight up X-Men, just some X-People doing their X-Thing. Uh, I'm joined by... A bunch Te- of X's. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, a few X's were mentioned oh, in this film. True. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, Tegan Mulvaney and Murray Jackson joining me again, uh, watching this film. Tegan, you were the first uh, time viewer for this film. What did you think? Uh, it was cool. It was really fun. Mm. Um... I, being a massive fan of Logan, the last Wolverine film, I was excited that there was, it was almost kind of a big full circle that he comes in where the whole story is about him protecting a mutant girl and in Anna Paquin's Rogue and and Logan was the same thing. So I thought that was super, super cool Mm. um, that they paid homage to that in Logan. Um, That was rad. I'd never noticed that before. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was a good thing. It was, it's like, uh, and whether they did it on purpose or not, I feel like they may have. It was beautiful, a beautiful way to start his story and end his story. Mm. And um, I, I think you do have to start with um, Wolverine oh, and, totally. and Logan. Because this is really his film. The film is, is called X-Men, but really, you know, he's one of the first mutants we're properly introduced to. And he's and he's just great. Hugh Jackman is mm. so good. You you can see why they were like, please do nine more films of varying quality. Yeah. <laughs> because he's fantastic. And probably also, you know, they talk about actors being addicted to playing certain characters as mm. well. Like you can see him kind of loving playing this character too. Or like how cool to just make a career out of being a dude with hand knives. Like yeah. it's rad. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, that was the thing we were saying just before we started recording this again, Murray, is that this film really holds up. Like, those effects with yeah. the claws and pretty much most of the other special effects don't look like this film is 18 years old. No, and um, I, I was actually a little bit worried about that coming in because, 
when it gets to those big action sequences with lots of characters doing CGI stuff. Um, but once again, I think um, harking back to when we were talking about Evil Dead, a lot of that stuff um, appears to be done in camera with wire work and, mm. and so on. So the temptation now would be let's just do it all in the computer and mm. you know we can have a triple somersault with a you know, half pike and so on. These guys were doing stuff, um, you know, in in wire work, like you know, um, hidden hidden tiger, crouching dragon. Oh no, yes, crouching yes, tiger, hidden. Dragon. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was all in camera. Exactly, and, and se- on set, there's clearly like the train station is a train mm. is a set of a train station that's mm. falling apart around. It's not a green screen at all. Mm. It's stuff. Stuff. There's like polystyrene blocks falling down and things yeah. is cool and but they it- also cast um like for instance toad in there who does mm. a lot of that sort of tumble work and you know um somersaults and and stuff like that that guy is a very accomplished martial artist yeah. so yeah. Right. it's yeah. it's ray park better known it's as your uh, casting as uh, as darth maul you mm. were saying mm. um and we even got a bit where he was swinging a pole around a little bit like darth maul <laughs> so it was yeah um I mean, I, I'm honestly surprised with how well this film stands up considering its age and also considering that I think superior ensemble films, as we've seen, um, can be a bit tricky to pull off. Obviously, we've seen um, several attempts at the Fantastic Four, which mostly haven't succeeded by and large. Mm. Um, you Obviously, the Avengers, the first one was very successful. The second one people didn't like as much. And Infinity War, um, whilst a very spectacular film, um, has got, I, th- I think, big problems with just having too much in there. I, I think it, getting that balance right between having the right amount of different ensemble heroes, yeah. I think, is quite tricky. And X-Men, I think, does a really good job of keeping it as simple as possible. I think the thing with X-Men is, from my perspective anyway, it's impeccably cast. Mm-hmm. Um, you have very strong lead actors in both... Um, uh, the leader of the X-Men and the leader of the Brotherhood of Mutants. Mm. Um, Best and you awesome. had so many other actors there who were probably at the peak of their careers. Um, Some of them are phoning in their performances, though. Halle Berry's a bit <laughs> yeah. on the nose in this. But there, there's not <laughs> a... Let's, let's face it, with a lot of those roles, there's not a great deal for them to do. They no, just put sh- good actors in those roles to make the best that they could of them. Yeah. And, and it really did. comes down to your... She was stinky. <laughs> really? <laughs> you didn't like her. No, well, I, and I totally agree that, like, she basically had to stand around in a white wig. Bingo. Being, yeah, mm. being, but you could you could put a bit of effort in, buddy, <laughs> I, I, I reckon. Well, I mean, she she had the accent in this film. She doesn't have the Kenyan accent in any other film. No, she, that's, I was trying to figure out what accent it was. Yeah, like, she's, I she's, she's like, are you Spanish? What's she's attempting a, a sort of, like, bit of a Kenyan dialect which is right. in relation to the character of Storm right. and they drop that for the subsequent movies where she has a bigger part more to play. dialogue yeah and I, I agree like the character of Storm it, it's a cool character and a really big important part of the X-Men Definitely. she was my favourite in the comic yeah. in the cartoon but like in, I loved her in this particular film um, she's a little bit in the backseat and she gets to come more to the foreground in the later films as which same with Jean Grey yeah, yeah. the second but film is essentially played, her great. film she, I know she had a little bit more to play with, maybe, mm. but she just she just played really well. She yeah. didn't have much to say. So did Cyclops. Yeah, Cyclops he was all right. Did, he didn't have much to say. Didn't say much, but did his thing. Just the 
oh, I don't trust you, Wolverine. Ooh. Yeah. Hey, where's my bike? You know, Stay like, away from a girl. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, she is like what I think of Scarlett Johansson <laughs> as Black Widow, which is Snooze Fest 1000. I can't mm. stand Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. Um, maybe because it's how they've made her be Black Widow, but I just think she's, I don't know. You're not a fan. I hate it. <laughs> no, that's that's totally fine. I, I and this it just oh, there was like yeah. it reminded me of that of this kind of look pretty acting when I think, which is in, maybe you know in eighteen years we've come a long way. I don't think there's any excuses for Scarlett Johansson to be doing that in these films. I think you know when you command the when she's such a talent because she's such a talent and like she should be doing more with her roles. Mm. But then to, to be perfectly honest, um, once again with the comics medium, uh, women characters weren't written well until you know many, many years after. I mean, you, you, yeah. Jean Grey in the original X-Men series, um, man, those early X-Men comics, there's a real rapey vibe around how the rest of the yeah. team treat her. Mm-hmm. You know, token female, Ooh, yeah, I'm quite yeah. taken with her. Um, so, you know. I feel it's interesting that in this film we're almost a, a little bit of a halfway house because obviously we don't have Beast from the original X-Men mm. in this and he's the he's no. essentially the, 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 the Doctor character. Yeah. And she takes on that role in the absence of Beast in this film. This is very much centred around... Um, once again, it's very hard to correlate the comics, but this mm. is very much in tune with the second X-Men team that came in on board with, um, you know, about 1975 with uh, Chris Claremont and... Um, You'll have to say their yeah. X-Men names. Yeah, okay. So there was a, 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 a comic called Giant Size X-Men, um, number one, that came out in, in 1975. It was a revival of the... X-Men comic, which had been dead for about six years. Right. Mm. And, I and, believe... and the team mm. comprised Cyclops, Storm, um, Wolverine. It was very multicultural. Gambit. Um, no, Gambit. No, Gambit was later. <laughs> um, so I say the ones you, I know. <laughs> you, you can't really... Jubilee. <laughs> you can't really put this movie in terms of, mm. of the, the comic series, but it, it's more around that second team of X-Men. Right. I have a question. Yes. When they made this film, did they know that they were going to make a bunch of sequels? They intended to, um, but at the same time, Fox were not entirely sure if it was going to work. So they yep. actually had quite a small budget for a blockbuster. I believe it was only 75 million. Wow. Which that's not at, that at, much actually. And at the time, yeah. the average blockbuster was about 100 million. Fox yeah. were not entirely convinced, but they did sign up the actors to like multi-film contracts on the chance that it actually worked. Like they, they So want- that's really ballsy because yeah. just watch and you know, I think you made a comment at the end when clearly they're setting up for X-Men 2 because well they they they're telling Wolverine where he can find mm, more about his mm. past and then you have that chess scene with um, Professor yep. X and um, and Magneto where they're clearly setting up for sequels. Sure. It was like, uh, I, I was thinking, I was like, did they know? Because if this is the first of what has now become an incredible franchise, mm. 
that's so gutsy mm. for that for one writer as well there's only one writer on that screenplay well only one credited writer right fair there, enough. there were um multiple different writers that came in and did different alterations including uh joss whedon was one ah. of the writers only two of his lines survive uh into the film and one of them is the do you know what happens when a toad gets struck by lightning the same thing as everything else which has sort of become a little bit infamous as being a quite a bad movie line because she's delivering it like a snoring lazy (laughs) asleep actor who doesn't like the role they've been given oh you're totally going home and watching monsters ball just to restore your faith in halle berry tonight no i have no faith in halle (laughs) (laughs) halle no i i i guess it could have been worse it could have been catwoman well see this is my all right so i always i always compare these if you don't like your role, fair enough. But she's getting paid a lot of money to do that role, mm. I'm assuming. Probably one of the highest paid in that movie. Probably. Because she'd be the one of the, she'd be top billing. Oh, close I think to top billing. McKellen and Stewart might have uh, the, taken the In the billing, I believe she's sixth. So she's oh. the top the top three billing were Jackman, Stewart and McKellen. Right. And then she sort of on the same part as um Famke Janssen and James yeah. Marsden, who are um Cyclops and Jean Grey, right? Um, but see, but but she okay. So, but she gets more uh, billing when when we go as further it goes into, along. Okay, into that series. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll forgive her a little bit then. Yeah. But I always think of it as like um, in Batman and Robin, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing um, Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze, where it's a terrible role in a terrible film as a really uncomfortable unpleasant character but because he's getting 20 million dollars to make the movie he's like ah i'm gonna give it everything it's got like Mm. uh, it's the professional Mm. deal but it could could also partly be a direction thing the you know brian singer may have wanted a really boring storm um maybe maybe that's what every director of every uh avengers film wants out of scarlett johansson quite possibly um but i mean it's a small part of the film that I think doesn't work when there is this larger collective that works. Like, I think the crimes mm. of Halle, Halle Berry are, are pale into insignificance to the incredible acting that we get from Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Absolutely. Mm. And Hugh Jackman. And yeah. And, it's, and it, Anna Paquin. Because it's an ensemble effort and yeah. the choice was to focus on those roles that those people get to shine and the rest of it is... It's fairly matter of fact, you know. Mm. It's just exposition, which is fair. But everyone puts in, so I'm I'm not letting it go. They put in so <laughs> much more effort than her. All of, like Famke Jansen is, she's probably got close to the same amount of lines, and she's she's sweet. She she there's there's more intrigue in her for the follow up. You know, like if mm. if it was like if I if that was the storm I got, I'd be like, no, I don't want to watch it. Do you think it's storm. also the nature of the role as to? Um, Remember, this is the early days of superhero films mm. and how actors might have thought, well, you know, I, what do I do here? Because yeah, uh, that's fair. This that is isn't a, fair. your normal dramatic role. Mm. Like, um, and, everything's got to be bigger. Yeah, that's also fair. Yeah. And maybe like, she was out of her element a little bit. Mm, potentially. And like, for example, Patrick Stewart had never read the X-Men until the they said, we want you to play Professor X because 
you look like him essentially mm, yeah. and um he, really he, does. he um he, he it's one of the trivia points they sent him like a crate of x-men comics to read for research and he said oh it's the best research i've ever had to do for a role i just sat down and read comics for weeks That's and so great. he really got into it mm. um which i suppose again maybe shows that difference to an actor who gets a role that they can engage with more so than the others than, than something like storm where storm is essentially look at this power look at look at her do this cool lightning thing yeah. but she, she doesn't really have much I, I guess storm as a character doesn't have much at risk within the film beyond what the risk is to all of them whereas we've got this love triangle thing that's developing mm. yeah, between that's the others and that draws in the other two and then obviously yeah. between charles and eric you've got um, this Magneto professor yeah. x sort of well love affair with the actors in real life because they're <laughs> best bros but but in, in terms of like two two guys who've known each other since they were 17 and mm. who are on opposite sides it's of this debate. Yang thing. Yeah. It's like everyone else has more to play with than Storm. I think it's that, prog- you know, like looking at the progression of these films, superhero films now as well. Like when you look at Guardians of the Galaxy and you see how much license those actors are given to be as silly as possible. Mm. I like that's where we're transforming and how we're making mm. and looking at films now again, which is really exciting because I think as film actors and like anyone who's done tiny bits of stuff on on film as compared to on stage, mm. you're you're given that a direction of less is more so much that mm. now that we're moving into an era where people we're, like the films are still very passionate and there's still a lot of kind of seriousness to them and and um like beautiful human moments, but those characters are so silly. Like, mm. I, but I, that, that's the metamorphosis, isn't yes, it? Yeah. And once again, you've got. X-Men, which, look, let's be honest, it's a film that's trying to take itself fairly seriously. You have the moments where Wolverine makes fun of, you know, what's your name, Wheels, um, where he's yeah. making fun of the, the nicknames that they've all got, which yeah. is really cool. It's like, let's get that out the way, guys, and we're going to focus on the fact that this is a serious film about serious events, and, you know, there is... Um, you know, there's a, a an obstacle to get over. There's there's a villain created, and we've got to save the day. To a film like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is breaking fourth wall, winking at the audience type of stuff, um, where they just the, the the medium had got to a point where it was so relaxed it could do that. You but it still ha- talks yeah. about serious things. It still talks about family and loss and identity and uh, sure. creation like it's still but they'd learned by then they could yeah. have fun yeah. with it as well like Definitely. it had fun with the medium the audience was ready for it uh, you couldn't have guardians before x-men you, you go back and listen to a lot of the talk around the time it was announced that marvel were doing a guardians of the galaxy film and everyone was like what what <laughs> what what oh okay because I mean, it was like as- no that's yeah. one of the worst comics in the marvel yeah. stage you might as well do like a quilt man film like it was you know just just it was that absurd an idea and then it worked because awesome. because one they did a really good job james gunn and the the, the casting in that film yeah. i think was on point as well yeah but they also had learned the lessons of previous ensemble films they'd learned from what had happened with the avengers they'd learned mm. from what happened with arguably the second avengers which didn't work as well well particularly the 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 
early 2000s of fantastic four films or which... uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen oh. uh you know things things like that mm. where we we'd seen things like x-men and x-men 2 which had worked really well and then we'd seen things which hadn't worked and they were able to go all right we can do this plus the audience we we believe knows a bit more about how to read these ragtag sort of extraordinary power ensemble films mm. um yeah but i think all of them owe quite a lot to to x-men because absolutely it, i mean it still works it really works and i think the central argument that message about you know government interference in in mutants lives which is so allegorical to so many different social issues um like ian mckellum was very much playing uh, and building his magneto character around um essentially gay rights activism that kind of thing but taking it obviously to that extreme villainous point but that is how he sort of built up that argument for him to get to get the emotionality of why Magneto was connecting with that. And plus, this film does frame it where Magneto isn't some big overarching mwahaha villain, because we see at the beginning of the film what happened to him yeah, when he was a child in a concentration camp. Yeah. Which he saw he sees in this history repeating, which yeah. is yeah, we're all going to be registered, we'll all be in camps, we'll all be yeah. numbered. And it makes perfect sense. And why, it, why once again, the, want... the scene where they're holding up, the, the protests are holding up the placards yeah. there with, mm. you know, mutant registration now and put them all in camps and so on. And you turn on the news today and see, you know, what's happening with regards to reaction to this caravan that's going through the, 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 the Americas at the moment, heading towards... America, and you go, my God, nothing's changed. Mm. Mm. It's all allegorical, as you say, to, to where we are now. Mm. And it probably always will be. And it's very, it, it's also that the film tells it so well. And that even though Magneto is the villain, and it's very much set up as though Magneto, his, his methodology, I guess, is what's the problem. It's the fact that he kills people. It's the fact that he's willing to kill Rogue to, to make this point. He's not, even when the X-Men are telling him, no, no, it killed Senator Kelly what you did. He doesn't care because he mm. wants to prove his point. Or even when Wolverine, it's quite a beautiful moment when Wolverine says, if you were, if you, you know, if you really were a man of dignity, you'd be up in there. You wouldn't be using her to do it. You'd do it yourself. Yeah. You'd sacrifice yourself to do it. Yeah. So it was, and it's, and, it's, it's just very well argued. And it's, it, yeah. and to be honest, I think it's quite, uh, quite mature in how it deals with it. And I think those decisions, like you said, to, to get rid of some of those things, like like the or like you know, make a point that the nicknames are silly, or even reference, yeah. isn't this black leather a bit much? What do you want, yellow spandex? Yellow spandex, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like those references to the existing material, um, both sort of like set it in place in terms of the the overall canon of of what is X Men, but making it more mature makes it something that can be taken somewhat seriously because this was a film being released into a film a, a film world without these big superhero films like yeah. you said we really had only really had blade that had popped up and before that you're looking at the superman films with christopher reeve yeah and the pretty Batman much films. The, 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 the dc canon before that yeah because marvel had had so much trouble getting getting traction mm. um and even then, some of those Batman films, as we've mentioned before, yeah. had stank the place up. Like, it wasn't necessarily a, a method of storytelling that some people were going to take seriously. Mm. I liked that they used the social climate of the... Like, that seems to be a running thing through these comic book films as well. Um, which maybe... I don't know if it's consciously does, but maybe harks back to, you know, what you were saying about 
at the end of the war, people didn't want superhero comics Well, superheroes anymore. were created basically um, to, you know, get that patriotic, exactly. patriotic fervour up yeah. about how well or you know, we, we are doing in the war or can do against um, oppressive forces. Yeah. And you needed a super being. Um, you know, Captain America, you can't get more patriotic no, exactly. than that, can you? But this still used a political climate. I know it's a year before September 11 that it came out, but there was still that climate brewing. There were still wars going on. And then mm. the twi- it's quite staggering to see a film with the Twin Towers in it only a year mm. before they were gone. Mm. Um, and then is it Spider-Man that came after that, that where yeah, they had to yeah. change the storyline? There was a sequence in which Spider-Man was going to utilise... Be between the towers, Yeah, wasn't to create it? a web to capture a helicopter. Yeah. And obviously they had to uh, get rid of that because yeah. they were no longer there. But wasn't that set on the Statue of Liberty as well? Um, I, is that no, fight on the li- Statue of I Liberty? I don't believe so, no. There's, that, one's more, that one's more just... Uh, well, we covered it back in episode 12, Murray, if you want to go and uh, oh, listen okay. to it. Oh, <laughs> um, But we... we um, in that film, the New York skyline is obviously such a big part of it because Spider-Man yeah. is... That's his playground. That's where he swings yeah. through it. Um, and yeah... That's it, the other thing about the, the Marvel films as opposed to DC films is they're all set in a recognisable universe. Places. So you will find in, you know... Marvel characters all live in real cities. Yeah. Um, and they they interact with one another. Um, the, 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 and the only time they make up locations is when they're necessary for stories. So like Wakanda and Black Panther, mm. it's more just like, okay, so this has to be this fantastical element. But they still set it in, like, in the geography of Africa. They, they sort of, like, they have a place for it and they talk about how it interact, how it would interact with those nations around it. For sure. And then the ti- again, the yeah. timing of the movie of Black Panther times in with the political and social climates. It's mm. beautifully... It, it's Marvel have done it so well. It was really exciting to see this kind of the start of that, mm. having watched so many recently. Like, all of the newer ones, I've watched more than these sort of initial ones. And they're all... Like or we're still at the same point. We've still we've got Wolverine and Logan, like in this oppressive world that hates mutants, and we go all the way through to to the end of Wolverine, which is Logan. He's still in this oppressive world. It's just in the future. It's like it's a constant shows the cyclical and kind of well, it's, it's banal the nature theme is the, yeah, of the, the world. The just going, we can trust of something different. That's it. We continue Distrust, on yeah. and on with this kind of side-eyeing of anything that we don't understand mm-hmm. um that's actually I'll, i liked that conversation between the senator and storm where he asks her what do you are you do you not do you hate human mm. real like normal people and she says sometimes because they scare me yeah. like that was really interesting yeah. that mm. part and that was also a bit where Halle Berry could act dare I say because she's being she didn't know but oh. <laughs> i thought she was okay in that scene <laughs> Sorry, Halle Berry fans. Yeah, that's okay. Um, would you guys like some trivia about Yes, X-Men? please. Go for it. Hugh Jackman took ice-cold showers every morning of filming uh, in order to get into character. This tradition started well. he... Oh, I'll start that sentence again. This tradition started when he jumped into a shower at 5am before um, realising there was no hot water. Uh, he was shocked to wake but didn't want to wake his uh, sleeping wife. Uh, and so he gritted his teeth and was just like this in the shower going and then he realized that's what he needed to do for for wolverine so he made the cold shower part of his preparation for getting into character oh no just act (laughs) 
no, no, no. I just, I can't wake up. Is it Deb? Take his a wife? photo of it. Deborah Lee Finnett. Yeah, mm. yeah. Because he talks about Deb all, all the time. She's so, awesome. Yeah. I adore her. Yeah. And but coincidentally, I don't know if he'll be doing anything like this, but when uh, Hugh Jackman did his live show uh, when he toured Australia, if he ever does stuff like that again, you should go see it. The man is an entertainment machine. I saw um, Boy From Oz with him in it mm. when he just decided he wanted to do it. So he put on an Australian national tour of it. He was mm. caught. He was brilliant. Yeah. But you, yeah, you can, I can just imagine like, you know, Hugh Jackman going like, I can't wake up Deb. Uh, uh, <laughs> ooh, actually, this is an acting thing. <laughs> Um, shortly after accepting the role of Magneto, Sir Ian McKellen was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Oh. Now, he originally declined that because, sorry, I'm, I'm busy, Peter. I've got to be in the X-Men. Uh, he then spoke to Brian Singer going, oh, I would quite like to be in Lord of the Rings too. So Singer agreed to rearrange the movie's shooting schedule so that McKellen would finish shooting his scenes by the end of 1999, allowing him to travel to New Zealand in January 2000. Uh, to join the Lord of the Rings production oh, three months good. after it started God, shooting. imagine if he wasn't Gandalf. Mm. Yeah, okay. That would be terrible. I they mean, would have just got Michael Gambon because that yeah. guy just seems to step into everything. Mm. Brian Blessed. Well, one of, one, of, one of Peter Jackson's original choices to talk about a completely different film was Tom Baker. Oh, oh wow. Okay. He wanted Tom Baker to play Gandalf, cool. but Tom Baker... Too was, busy being the voice of Little Britain. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, Matt Lucas and uh, <laughs> David yes, Walliams. Britain, 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 Brighton, Brighton, Brighton. He, um, I believe, Tom Baker did not think he was like healthy enough to do the grueling shooting schedule that they had. Oh, so that's fair. Uh, yeah, in, in, look, Ian McKellen was the right choice for that and the right choice for this, and we have a world where he got to do both. And oh, we thanks, sh- Brian Singer. Yeah, mm, that was very nice of him. Yes. Um, the train station scene uh, where the young boy smiles at Cyclops and he smiles back was unplanned. The boy was a massive X-Men fan and Cyclops was his favourite character. The scene originally called for Cyclops to look at the train schedule, but according to uh, Brian Singer, the boy couldn't stop smiling at James Marsden. So finally, during one shot, Marsden just looked at him and smiled back. Brian Singer liked it so much, they kept it in the film and then added the bit with the mother's like, get away, get away, we don't trust mutants, that kind of thing. Oh, that's... But yeah, that Cute. that little smile that boy does is genuine because he's like, it's Cyclops. It's an X-Men. It's How to get an favorite. instant cameo. Hmm. <laughs> uh, neither Patrick Stewart nor Ian McKellen knew how to play chess. <laughs> uh, they that bl- weirds me out. <laughs> what did they do during their days at the RSC? Play Uno? Uh, Checkers, probably. I was probably just sword drinking. Fighting. It's just sword That's fighting and drinking. We're going drinking. to play Connect Four, Ian. <laughs> Twister. <laughs> Right foot red. Fancy plain chess. <laughs> Is his face bearded? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Is <Guess>. it Bob? <laughs> Damn it. You have won this game of guess whom. <laughs> uh, they brought in a chess master to teach them how to play. That's so funny. No one would have cared. I wasn't following it, but some people might have. So, But yeah, I just... That's a lovely thing. And they're both there going, it is. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Rebecca Romin, Romin Stamos, Stamos, who was uh, Miss Who's now just Rebecca Romin because they got divorced. Yeah. Oh, well, in this case, Rebecca Romin. Um, her makeup as Mystique consisted of 110 custom design prosthesis, which covered 60% of her body and took nine hours to apply. She could not drink wine, use skin creams, or fly the day before filming because it would cause her body chemistry to change and the prosthetics would fall off. Mystique is a really um, sort of visually impactful incredible. character. Mm. And yeah. it is it is amazing how... 
and I think that's to to the credit of some of the more recent X Men films is that they've largely stuck with still having the physical, um, you know, blue body paint and prosthesis yeah. on. Um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, because it is more impactful seeing seeing that stuff in the real life. Um, yeah, definitely. It, and and she's great. Like Mystique is. Mystique's a great villain. She's terrifying. Yeah, I think she's one. She's so terrifying in the film, and I like that she survives. Obviously, she survives because she's continued on mm. with various actresses playing her. But um, no, it's, and it, and the makeup, the transition makeup, and the transition special effects mm. are very good in this film yeah. as well. It's also, I think, I think it's interesting that they shoot her in a way which isn't. That sort of like objectification, which, absolutely, which would happen, like because it's essentially you know like a naked blue lady running around. Yeah, a lot of directors would point the cameras in very different areas. Yeah, um, she has. I think what they've done with Mystique is they they create that sort of like we see a lot of like silhouettes of 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 the body shape, but she's never like you know posing sexily, going oh Magneto, what are we gonna do? No, Nothing she's like not. That. She's she's terrifying. Yeah. She's an assassin that's gonna like straight up stab you. Yeah, and it's a really great physical performance because she's a hot. Lizard woman. Yeah. Like, that's really... Cr- I think that'd be creepy because it'd kind of be like, ooh, but ugh. Mm. <laughs> it'd be so, like... It just challenges every, every part mm. of your brain and your body. It's like, what do you... Is she gross? Is she terrifying? Is she hot? Mm. Like, I don't know. And if, cool. she, and if you find it gross, she can always change into someone else. Exactly. And it's those eyes, isn't it? Yeah. Those, those eyes. Those lizard eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to celebrate her last day on set, uh, Rebecca brought in a bottle of tequila, which she gave to uh, cast and crew during a filming break. Unfortunately, that was the day uh, they happened to be filming the fight scene with Wolverine, and she got a bit sick and threw up blue-coloured vomit on Hugh Jackman because <laughs> the chemicals from her makeup coloured the vomit. Oh, no! <laughs> so How good is Jack- that? Hugh Jackman just got covered in blue puke. Oh, gross. That's so funny. Yeah, it's a shame that's not in the film. It would have been a great effect. I mean, you've got Toad throwing, spitting, spitting stuff. Yeah, why not Mystique? In order to keep her look a secret, uh, we're still on Rebecca uh, Ramin facts at the moment. Uh, she had to sit in an isolated, windowless room when not required for shooting. Uh, to, she said, "I had almost no contact with the rest of the cast. It was like I was making a different movie from everyone else. It was hell." Now, obviously, they then didn't have to do that for the subsequent films because everyone yeah. knew what Mystique looked like, but. That's that's unfortunate. That's a bit. That sucks. Yeah, but yeah, and she's. Uh, it must be difficult too because it's a. Uh, you know, she she's a very beautiful woman, and I guess she she gets used to being looked at and admired, and here she is shut away from the rest of the world. <laughs> mm. Actually, it might have been nice. Yeah, so like peace and quiet there for five minutes. Might have helped character wise as well for mm. just like because it'd take a while to adjust it. To seeing that, seeing yeah. this, you know, in those, yeah, those scenes, like in the helicopter when she's, when she's with the senator and like he turns around and she's there, like you. <laughs> but can you imagine also the privation of, of nine hours of someone applying bits to you, yeah, to your naked Jesus. body? Because I'm, I'm going with the idea that she was actually naked when they put the prosthetics on. Uh, I don't There's have anything related to that. For... She, she certainly isn't wearing a lot. Like, yeah. isn't. No. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's she she has to be completely transformed. She's wearing contact lenses. Her hair has to be done. Mm. 60% of her body is covered in prosthetics and the rest has to be painted blue. That's like, a bugger of a day, isn't it? Yeah. So you'd, you'd have, like, nine hours of application 
And you have to assume to take that stuff off is probably another hour or two at least. Just a big hose. Just one big <laughs> So there, there must be like an hour maybe or an hour and a half of actual shooting during the day. And then it's like, well, it's She probably just didn't off. sleep much. Maybe mm. they that was what her eyes looked like at the end of the shooting schedule. Mm. Just yellow and bloodshot. Well, they had they would have had to do really long shoot days then for her. Yeah. Because, again, going, harking back to other other films, but I know that with Arnold Schwarzenegger in when he was Mr. Freeze, because he has in his contract, he only works 12-hour days. Right. So his prosthetics took six hours mm. to put on. So they only had him for shooting for like two hours at a time because mm. then he'd take another like three or four hours to take everything off again as well. Was it Chris O'Donnell in that film who said, I made a film with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I never met the man. That's it. And they were in all these scenes together, but they weren't because they just had to shoot the front-ons and then have a body double because he only shot 12-hour days and it took so long to get him in his makeup. Right. So well, I'm assuming like she must have just been working like 18-hour days. Yeah. And then it's like, great, you're done. Now sit in this box. No one's allowed to see you. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. No wonder she got sick of it. Um, Hugh Jackman got his testicles caught in his harness after a six foot jump off the set Statue of Liberty. Oh my God. And they went clank when they <laughs> <laughs> That's a piece of trivia I wish you hadn't shared with us, actually, Stephen. Oh, oh, well, you know, sometimes we sometimes we all get a bit uncomfortable with trivia. And it's uh, it's important to know the sacrifices he made um, in this because. Certainly I, didn't affect his singing voice. No. No. Well, made it better. Yeah. <laughs> he can hit those high notes. <laughs> Most of the eye effects were achieved by the actors and actresses wearing special contact lenses, but they were uncomfortable and in some cases dangerous to wear. Uh, Storms ones? Re- well, we'll get to that. Oh. Rebecca Ramin uh, could only wear her Mystique lenses for one hour at a time and only had 10% vision when she wore them. Tyler Main, also known as Sabretooth, kept his in him for too long and was temporarily blinded for a day. So I know a little bit about this because I worked an optometrist. So when you wear contacts, your, your eyes don't have blood vessels running through them um, and you, that's their... So your corneas um, can permeate oxygen and create oxygen. So when you wear contacts, it, it stops your eyes from being able to do that. So they, you do, you go blind. Mm. So you're only supposed to wear them. And coloured lenses are even worse. So you, mm. then nothing can get through them. Mm. And if you leave them in too long, your eyes grow blood vessels and that can make you go blind as well because your body freaks out. You get blood vessels growing across your cornea and your irises. See, to and me, I'm, that's grosser than Hugh Jackman's hurt testicles because... Mm. That's disgusting. Yeah, and so you're, and you, um, it can really damage your corneas. He's lucky his sight mm. came back mm. from that. Uh, Halle Berry wore her opaque white storm lenses once and found them unbearable, so they changed it so they did hers with CGI. So they're called sclera lenses, and mm. they sit. You have to like open up your eye and get it under your eye cavity. They cover the entire part of your eye. They're horrific. But this would have been in the. This was filmed in the days when um, you had soft lenses. I I, I I wear contacts. I had soft lenses back then. They're all soft, but because they're painted and they um, they're made of a, they have to be a thicker material. Right. And um, so yeah, contacts now uh, and back then you could get um, ones that do oxidize, so they do let For oxygen sure. through, yeah. but coloured lenses don't. Right. Um, and so they they're just. So, so I'm, people I'm wear picturing them. all these people who used to wear them, you know, the cat's eyes and that yep. with their goth makeup. Yep. They're all going to go progressively blind, sucked in. <laughs> yeah, take that, goths, I guess. <laughs> um, 
Hugh Jackman's physique looked slightly different in different scenes because he was cast three weeks after principal photography started and was working out extensively while shooting continued. Now, I said this to you guys mm. before we started watching the film, and it was noticeable. It's very noticeable, particularly him in the fight, when mm. he's in the cage fight, and then him running around when he wakes up in the the school, in Xavier's school. Like... There's a significant change in his physique between those two scenes. And that guy has the most insane workout regime. I yeah. mean, he can he's an awfully strong guy, Hugh Jackman. He can bench press an awful lot. He's he can beautiful. carry an entire film as we almost saw here. <laughs> um Well, I I remember going to see we went to see um him in a stage play in New York and I was literally sitting from here to probably uh, Tegan, the seat next to you over there. Mm. So that's, that's how close we were. It's about and three meters for those yeah. listening. I spent the better part of the first half hour just looking at the guy's arms. Yeah, he's enormous. It's distracting. Mm. He's a he's a beautiful man. Oh, and 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 he's baby faced in this because he's only thirty one when I they know. filmed it, and it's just like, oh, what a cutie. Um, speaking of playing Wolverine, so we we all know Hugh Jackman was far from the first choice. Brian Singer's original first choice to play Wolverine was Russell Crowe. Ah! Oh. But Russell Crowe turned it down because he felt it was too similar to Gladiator, which he just... Can you imagine Wolverine of. throwing telephones at everyone? That would be... A, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine Wolverine talking like this? Mm. Um, <laughs> other actors that were considered for the role, and just simple yes-nos. Um, Mel Gibson? No. No. Uh, Aaron Eckhart? No. Possibly... Claude, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, no, God, no. no. Viggo Mortensen. Yes. Mm. He would be... I mean, he looks like Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah. So He looks like he's lived as a Canadian tramp in a cage he fight. He does a bit, yeah. Um, I, I would be all right with Viggo. I think he's too quiet in terms of his performance. Yeah, he probably wouldn't. He'd, like, he'd have to step it up with mm. the... He's a bit serious. Edward Norton? No. Oh, no, because he, he runs funny. Uh, my my favourite one on here, Bob Hoskins. <laughs> what? what? Yep. Serious? Bob Hoskins is on this list of actors that were considered. Because no, he's hairy. Way too old. I guess because he's shorter. I guess. He'd be good for Toad, maybe. But be good uh, for an actual Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Keanu Reeves was another one. Oh, Jesus. Physique, I'm torn, yes, I'm torn but... on this. Because mm. he's, well, he's a good mover. good to mover. change where he's from. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know. After watching John Wick... Oh, he's pretty badass in that, isn't he? Yeah. Um, So eventually, Do Grey Scott was cast, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts with Mission Impossible 2. Also, he was injured in a motorbike accident, so he was not in any condition. Russell Crowe was actually the reason Hugh Jackman got the job, though. Uh, Brian Singer was like, come on, Russell. And Russell's like, no, I'm not doing it. But Hugh Jackman's all right. So That's amazing. Yeah, so then... um, You know they don't like each other. Really? Yeah. Okay, well... I was not aware, but yeah, Crow suggested Hugh Jackman, according to this. It was 18 they, years ago, maybe they were buddies then. Possibly. How can that, how I feel you? like that might have been like a joke, like it, maybe, because Russell Crowe's an arrogant cock. Mm. And, um, Very much in the Halle Berry camp. Of <laughs> yeah, a little thought, bit. No, I don't know if she's an arrogant, I don't, you know, I don't know, but <laughs> she's just lazy. Um, no, he can't, they don't like each other. So I had no idea. Until Hugh Jackman became famous... He would snub um, Russell Crowe would snub him at everything, even though they'd gone through many, many acting 
roles Jeez. and gigs and things together and with this yeah. you know cut from the same sort of cloth really i i wonder hmm. total speculation but i wonder if he was like i'm not going to do it it's a bullshit role hey my mate hugh will do it give it to yeah, hugh give it to up, hugh yeah and then it's taken off because it was i'm i'm fairly certain it was hugh jackman who said this but when they did lay mis um Hugh Jackman was given top billing <laughs> over yeah. Russell Crowe, I yeah. think. And he got really funny about it. And so, but since then, Crowe's been really chummy. But they, Hugh Jackman's like, no, you've been a total ass to me my entire career. This That's is amazing. hilarious. It does explain why Javert hated uh, Jean Valjean so much, though. <laughs> I was like, why yeah. are you so obsessed with him? I've realised it's Russell. It's <laughs> Russell. That's it. Um, so that's, I find that really fascinating because I wonder if that was the reasoning behind it, mm-hmm. maybe. So Ian McKellen was initially reluctant to accept the role of Magneto, um, but was convinced when he saw the costume. It's okay. pretty cool. You can imagine Ian McKellen going, mm, not sure, you get to wear a purple cape. Ooh. Ooh. And a very phallic and, helmet. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it Ooh. is a cool costume, though. It's very cool. It is cool. And it gets cooler. Mm. And it changes the varieties. Yeah, it does get cooler. Uh, in the Hamilton location, which is where they shot the train station scenes, director Brian Singer was mistaken for an onlooker and was harassed by a policeman who wouldn't let him join the production team for some time. Because <laughs> he, he does look he's, he's does look a little bit ordinary, doesn't he, Brian mm. Singer? He's, he's nothing flashy about him. He's very much a average dude so i feel I like a lot that. of directors look like that yeah that's mm. why they're the director this is a so the talent and the scope is there but they're just these sweet little should have taken his director chair with him yeah, everywhere just carry it under his arm yeah as someone who has directed both of you in a play this year yeah i can agree <laughs> that's, that's kind of how it goes uh brian singer banned comics on set uh he didn't want them to influence the cast so the cast were secretly reading them when he wasn't around. But see, once again, the backstories of a lot of these characters are so different in the comics, I'm not sure you would have derived a hell of a lot from it anyway. Mm. And as much of a comic fan as I am, um, yeah, comic comics can be rather two-dimensional in terms of their characterization. Um, don't comics change the backstories a lot? Like, aren't there... Oh, there's multiple origins mm. for any number of characters, um, for it, sure. But sometimes they'll reboot the entire universe. Mm. Just Marvel's to, probably no. been a little bit better in terms of that than DC, which well, had to invent new universes to I was explain say, a we, lot of it. We um, haven't had a new 52 for Marvel yet, have we? No. 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 I don't think they would have gained a hell of a lot from it anyway, to be honest. No. Uh, a couple of other actors that were considered for Magneto. Terence Stamp. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. I'm imagining when his Priscilla get up there. That's the only thing. <laughs> it would have been great. Um, Maybe he, that's why I turn it down. Oh, purple cape. No, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> uh, David Hemblin, who was the voice of the Magneto character from the 90s cartoon. Mm. I don't know what he looks like, but oh, do I? he had the same voice, obviously. And uh, because, obviously, Sir Christopher Lee. Oh yeah, he would have been fine. Mm. He'd have been I don't. But terrible. by then, even then, he would have been probably getting a little bit too old to do that. Stuff. He'd have been in his seventies, so maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. But yeah, he could have been. He would have been very imposing. Mm. Mm. He voice, might have been a bit too be mean because you yeah. don't. I, I think the point of Magneto is not to hate him. Mm. Not, mm. He's got to be. 
measured. Yeah, because there's got to be reason why Dr. X or you know, Professor X still is mates with him, still has that connection to him where he mm. sees the good in him. Before everything goes tits up. Yeah. Uh, Oakley glasses uh, were um, brought in to design Cyclops' custom specs. Um, after the movie, they gave the actor James Marsden a lifetime supply of their sunglasses. Oh, poor thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> poor James Marsden. <laughs> how, how, how many sunglasses do you think would qualify as a lifetime supply? Well, that's a good question. I think I'd need about but a pair a week. Aren't they yeah. like, uh, they date? That's the thing, isn't it? They don't. Then they come back into fashion. I don't know if it's like he gets like 2,000 pairs now or he's just got like a card that means, oh, here you go. go well, get they were s- that style was super fashionable in the early 2000s. Do you think that- like on the set of Westworld, he just turns up and he just goes to his fellow actors, so anyone want any glasses? Because I've, Ew, got, no, I've got shed Oakley's. loads of these, seriously. <laughs> Gross. Take a box. Take a box. <laughs> Uh, executive producer Tom DeSanto chose Brian Singer to direct after watching The Usual Suspects. He was impressed with how Singer directed uh, the ensemble cast in that film. Solid. Yep. That's Although, fair. to be fair to Brian Singer, or perhaps not to be fair to Brian Singer, <coughs> I think a lot of the ensemble and The Usual Suspects just did whatever the hell they wanted to. Point in case Benicio Del Toro's performance in that mm. And his performance in most things, to be honest. <laughs> Great actor though he is. It's kind of just like, and we'll just let Ben do what he wants and then act around it. I'm not going to understand a word I say. But kudos to him for pulling the whole thing together. Um, I, you know, he, he made a name for himself. Mm. Um, not only out of the well, probably on the back of Usual Suspects, but I think Brian Singer really made a name for himself out of the X-Men films. Mm. Um, the first scene shot for the film was the World Summit on Liberty Island, where there were representatives from each country being greeted. Two of the guests, which have been jokingly referred to as the King and Queen of Poland, uh, were played by Singer's father and stepmother. <laughs> oh, nepotism. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, pretty much. Hey, you guys busy? You gonna oh, wear a crown? Yeah. Want to be some uh, defunct monarchs who've <laughs> not been in power since 1975? Let's get them in. <laughs> and in terms of trivia, I'm pissed. I'm going to have to go back and when you guys leave and watch this again, I missed the Stan Lee cameo again. Yes, well, for those who uh, are playing along at home, if you did miss it, Stan Lee's cameo is quite a bit more subtle than some of his other ones. He's at the hot dog stand when Senator Kelly comes out of the water water having been um, mutated. Become a fish man. Yeah, and he's just standing at the hot dog stand and he's staring in his usual Stan Lee get-up. He's at the beach and he's still in his usual Stan Lee get-up. Um, so yeah, that's his that's his brief cameo. So no, nothing, you know, he's not shouting Excelsior or anything like that. But yeah, again, nice to see him there. And it is nice that you know now that he is no longer with us, we do have this legacy of him popping up in all these different films. And you can imagine, you know, years down the line when you've got people who aren't alive now that were watching, you know, get enamored with these films because they're an eternal property of the Disney Corporation now that they're going to have this stuff coming out probably in perpetuity. They can go back and see this this initial creator cutting Thor's hair in Ragnarok. Or We were watching, because um, like Foxtel were playing um, all the Marvel films after his passing, and it was really sad. Like, it was kind of cool, but... Because it was, there was, they played, we watched Black Panther, we watched Ragnarok, and we watched Guardians of the Galaxy, and, and it was like, it was really sweet just to see him pop up in these silly roles in each mm. film. Because 
you just forget until you see like do you find that when you watch marvel films i always forget that he's going to be in it until i see him i'm oh, like no. oh there I'm he is i'm very much aware now i'm waiting for it to happen i always forget and then i see him I'm like oh but now it's like oh oh hmm. it do, it does break the fourth wall a hell of a lot yeah, and it'll be curious to see what they do with it now because obviously there's a couple of mm. films coming out which he's already filmed his bits for, so he will be in the next Avengers film. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they do those cameos. Maybe they'll do it a bit like in uh, Deadpool Two, where they had um, like a graffiti mural of Stanley on a wall in like a wide shot as yeah. as something is happening. It'll be things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately though. Ultimately, this was a good film, and I'm 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 quite glad we got to watch it as part of this this um, uh, I suppose like uh, memorial type thing because mm. I think the the legacy of what Lee and Kirby and all these creatives from that time, even people like Steve Ditko or, or Bob Gale working on all these fantastic characters from Marvel and DC, is that they've created a sandbox and and a set of characters which everyone can sort of find a place within generally there's there's such a variety of characters there's such a variety of stories that you can be you can be like me and think captain america is a really quite poor superhero in a lot of respects and not that interesting me too (laughs) but at the same time you can then go okay i don't like that love the thor stuff i love Mm -hmm. uh, batman you know over in dc um you know you have these you have these opportunities to get into it and to have this this sort of fun escapism. And I think it is quite quite a positive and creative legacy to leave behind. I think it would have astonished a lot of those early creators because many of them didn't live to see this. I mean, Bob Kane lived to see Batman. Sorry, Bob Kane, not Bob Kale. Um, but Kirby didn't. Kirby wasn't around for the success. Um, and I, I think it would startle them to see that their creations have become such a well such a business in this day and age and have survived for decades and and possibly will for for decades to come and you know the the fact that it's come to a um a a point of such wide acceptance that the 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 comic book with the comic book which is one of the the you know one of the great american creations um has has come to the point now where it's it's just so widely embraced worldwide Mm. um yeah kudos to them for having come up with the ideas before we finish today uh we are here with murray jackson uh collector of massive comics and um massive amounts of comics as well as regular size comics um what what we have here is something a little bit special. Now, obviously, this is an audio medium, um, so if you're listening to this, uh, you won't be able to see it, but if you go over to our Facebook page, you'll be able to see a picture of uh, what I believe is a first issue of X-Men. Correct, Stephen. Yes, this is um, X-Men number one um, from... Oh, God, now I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I think it's... September 1963 was the first issue. Um, and, yeah, I, I picked this up a few years back when I was trying to complete my run of X-Men. Um, I've read these early issues. Um, I haven't just collected them and put them away. I have actually read them, albeit 
um, in a collected format. Uh, they're, they're really interesting in terms of being a product of their time. They're very simplistic. Um, so, you know, there's, there's peril. The good guys come in, they fix the peril, and it's all done. Um, and usually within the, um, the pages of the issue. So you, you didn't get sweeping story arcs or anything mm. along those lines. That, that came years later. Um, and it's just interesting with the, the dynamics of the team. So Jean Grey, who appears in the film, um, in this she's, she's very much you know the uh, object of affection of the lads in the team, all competing for her interest. Um, uh, ultimately, she does end up with Scott Summers, Cyclops. Um, but the great thing is that they developed her character and over the years she went on to be something very big in the X-Men universe, mm-hmm. um, even became a villain. Well, um, I believe that's where we're heading with the next film, uh, Dark Phoenix. Well, yeah, she becomes Phoenix in the next film and then I think it's X-Men Last Stand and it's, she becomes Dark Phoenix. I can't recall off the mm. top of my head, but yeah. Uh, it sort of follows that storyline, um, but yeah, yeah, fairly simplistic in these these early days, and and very much in the the sixties. Um, the X Men was one of the lagging titles of the Marvel universe. Uh, eventually, getting cancelled in I think nineteen sixty nine after they done about seventeen or eighteen issues reprinting some of the early earlier stories. Right, and then in nineteen seventy five came along with. Giant size X Men, which mm. was a special. I think they were just testing to see, yeah, could we make a comeback with this? So they introduced a new team, and they were very much a multicultural team. So you had Wolverine from Canada, you had Storm from Kenya, uh, you had um, Colossus from Russia, um, different sort of characters, um, Nightcrawler from Germany. Uh, and they relaunched the title, and it was wildly successful on the back of a guy called Chris Claremont, who was a very, very good comics writer, um, and came up with probably the most seminal uh, X-Men storylines in his time. The year before that, Wolverine originated, 1974, Wolverine originated in The Incredible Hulk, uh, Hulk seems to have been responsible for introducing a lot of comic characters mm. who went on to be probably, arguably, more important or more successful, popular, whatever the word may be, in the Marvel Universe than the Hulk himself. Oh, that would make him mad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, we won't like that. So it screams, the Incredible Hulk and now the Wolverine. And, and, and the survivor of the epic battle must face the Wendigo. And, um, oh, yeah, the third big famous character. That's it, yeah. Whatever happened to the Wendigo? Well, I believe he's getting a, um, a Disney Online interactive series in 2022. So that's... What? So, yeah. He's not. I'm just, it sounds believable, though, doesn't it? Mm. So, yeah, when, when, when they talk about the yellow spandex, there is Wolverine in his yellow spandex mm. in, in, that, in that, uh, that early The issue. Wendigo is a, like a weird blue gargoyle thing monkey yeah um well um yes we'll have an uh, an image of of those uh, delightful uh, pictures up uh, the delightful comics sorry up there on the website for you to see and uh, murray I, I must admit i'm not a comic books person so just how rare is it to have a first edition of x-men uh it's certainly not common and it's it's getting uh, 
less common because they're not making new original copies mm. of X-Men. Can one. I buy it off you for $10? No, you probably could not do that. It's fair to say that um, that comic in its condition goes for uh, several thousand American dollars now. Um, you know, unfortunately, I haven't got the creme de la creme, which is a comic called Amazing Fantasy number 15, which is the introduction of Spider-Man. That comic I did have the opportunity to buy about four or five years ago in quite a low grade for about 9,000 US. The same comic today now sells for about 16,000 US. Um, so the appeal of you know, nostalgia and um, you know, having that little bit of our, our childhood seems mm. to be growing in its allure. Um, and I guess that comes on the back of the fact that a lot of the earlier stuff from the 40s and the 50s now beyond most people's ability to buy. So the, what we now call the Silver Age of Comics, which is those from about 1957, 56 onwards up to about 1980, they are really growing in their popularity and their collectability. Well, with that being the case, thank you very much for showcasing them in their, very, I must say, very well-maintained plastic. It's, um, yeah, no, it's it's really impressive and lovely to have an artifact like that. And for people who are listening at home, this is what it sounds like to be in the same room as those comics. Hulk smash. <laughs> All right, let's score the film. Antigua, we'll start with you because you were the person watching this film for the first time. What score would you give X-Men out of 10? Uh, I really liked it. I'm going to give it eight and a half adamantium middle finger claws out of 10. Nice. Uh, Murray, what would you give it? Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm going to give it seven and a half rogue touches. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. It's a little bit of an innuendo sounding thing. Uh, but, <laughs> it was deliberate. Uh, very good. And for me, I'm... I'm Pretty much around the same as both of you. I, I was pleasantly surprised with how this stood up to my memory of it from watching it as like a 10, 11 year old. Um, it was it was still fun. It's still a fun film. It's definitely worth watching. So I'm going to give it eight uh, original editions of the X-Men, uh, which are just out of arm's reach. So I can't run out of the room and then... I can take them. <laughs> Uh, but yes, um, thank you very much, uh, Murray and Tegan, for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. That's fine. I'm just going to read this first edition over this lit candle. Yeah. Oh, uh, do you want to oh. have some barbecue ribs oh, there? Uh-oh. Do you want to eat them by hand next time? Uh, no. Oh, no. Wine, wine. Oh, I think it's starting to rain in here. Put the salsa down. <laughs> um, uh, can anyone smell burning plastic? Excelsior. Thank you, true believers. There we go. Uh, For those of you listening at home, thank you for listening to this episode. This episode uh, and the film contained within was selected by our Patreons. They got to nominate all these different superhero films which were up for the vote, and then the general public chose. Uh, Thank you for not choosing more rats, I'm just going to say, because that would have maybe not been the legacy we wanted to leave for Mr. Lee. Uh, Great cameo. It is a great cameo, but maybe not thematically appropriate. Uh, For those of you who are... um, interested in becoming a member of the club and being involved in things like that you can find us over at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast if you want to see 
an image of uh, Murray's original edition of these comics with Hulk smashing and Wendigos abound, <laughs> then you just need to go to facebook.com and search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. Give the page a like and you can see the pictures there and also get weekly updates of our episodes. If you're a bit more traditional and you want your podcast to just come straight to your phone or laptop, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud or any other podcasting or podcatching service. But that's all for this week, so until next time... Excelsior! And beyond. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.